This is Seeger Gray and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. After months of debate, the National Republican Party has announced that Milwaukee will be the site of the 2024 Republican National Convention. The Capital Times reports that Milwaukee was approved by a unanimous vote by RNC officials last Friday. This is not the first time in recent memory that Milwaukee has held a national convention. In 2020, the Democratic National Convention was held in Milwaukee, though the pandemic drove that convention to largely take place online. An exact date and venue for the convention has not yet been determined. The Dane County Board of Supervisors announced on Friday their pick to lead an investigation into the Henry Vilas Zoo. Former Dane County Judge Valerie Bailey Wren will investigate allegations of racism by zoo management, retaliation for union activity, and whistleblowing, animal mistreatment, and neglect, as well as other allegations. Bailey Wren only recently retired as Dane County Circuit Judge, where notably she oversaw a case against other former judge-turned-investigator Michael Gableman. A final report from Bailey Wren on the Henry Vilas Zoo is expected as early as October. The UW Hospital emergency room had to divert patients for over five hours on Saturday due to electrical problems, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. At around 1 p.m., a transformer at the hospital malfunctioned, shutting off power to the hospital. Though an emergency backup generator was able to immediately restore power to critical equipment and infrastructure, patients were still diverted to other emergency rooms until after 6 p.m. The hospital has not said whether the transformer is functioning normally at this time, though patients are again being taken to the hospital's emergency room. The Dane County Humane Society will be holding their sixth annual Clear the Shelters event this weekend. Adoption fees for all dogs, cats, and other critters will be reduced during the event. The Humane Society says people who come to the event should expect to wait one to three hours to see an animal, as they will be limiting the number of potential adopters so as not to overwhelm the animals. You can find more details on the event on the Dane County Humane Society's website. The fall partisan primary election takes place tomorrow, and the Wisconsin Elections Commission has a few reminders for voters heading to the polls. If you still have an absentee ballot, do not place them in the mail, as it can take a week for mail to be delivered. Instead, the commission tells you to bring your ballot to the clerk's office as soon as possible, so it can be delivered to the proper polling place in time. According to the city clerk's office, there were over 29,000 absentee ballots sent in the Madison area, and around 21,500 absentee ballots returned thus far. Voters do need an acceptable photo ID to vote in Wisconsin. This can be a driver's license, a state-issued ID card, a military ID, a photo ID issued by a Wisconsin university, or a passport. A full list of acceptable photo IDs is available on the Wisconsin Elections Commission website. Finally, polls open at 7 a.m. tomorrow and close at 8 p.m. As long as you are in line to vote by 8 p.m., you will be able to cast your ballot. And now on to today's top stories. WORT producer Nate Wiggehaupt had never been to a Trump rally before, that is, until last week when former President Donald Trump came to Wisconsin ahead of the primary election tomorrow to praise his endorsed candidates. Here's Nate's report from last Friday. I arrived at the Waukesha County Fairgrounds at around 1.30 on Friday. Amid sweltering heat wearing a trucker hat, 
neutral Hawaiian shirt, and jeans. Trump came to Wisconsin to vouch for his candidate picks. His list of endorsed candidates include Adam Steen, a candidate running against top Republican Robin Voss. For governor, Trump has endorsed Tim Michaels and for Senate, Derek Van Orden. As soon as I had parked the car, I was immediately accosted by anti-Joe Biden memorabilia. The parking lot was filled with people selling t-shirts reading F. Joe Biden, with three extra letters added to the first word. I began in the merchandise area, where tents, truck beds, and RVs were decked out with Trump gear for sale. It was your average fare, mostly shirts and hats, with various Trump slogans and conservative talking points, such as a button reading, My Second Amendment is My Gun Permit. I joined the line to enter the rally grounds proper. Large speakers surrounded the line, blasting music from every angle. This would become a recurring theme at the rally. After about 10 minutes in the winding line, I made it to the security checkpoint run by the Secret Service and the TSA. It was here that I learned that no outside beverages were allowed in the rally grounds. I chugged the bottle of water I had brought with me and made my way inside to a large field. Four food trucks selling everything from lobster rolls to lamb kebabs sat on one side of the field, all four with lines that ran all the way to the other side of the field. I found a woman wearing a t-shirt that read, My Children Are Not For Sale, and struck up a conversation. Unfortunately, the music was very loud, and as we were standing right next to a speaker, my microphone did not pick up the conversation. She told me about the alleged human trafficking ring that was being run in Wisconsin, where thousands of children are kidnapped each year to be sold to wealthy pedophiles. After moving away, I found a young man dressed to the nines like former President Trump. Dressed in a full suit and tie, Alec told me why he was doing what he was doing at the rally. All right, and why are you out here today? I'm out here to support my president and I suppose uh, Michaels for governor. That was going to be one of my questions. So you know who you're voting for for governor here? Well, I don't live in uh, Wisconsin. I live in Illinois where I'll be voting for uh, Aaron, uh, no, Darren Bailey. And I have to ask, is that outfit hot? I, I'm sweating in just this. Yeah, it's very hot, believe me. Uh, I'm dying. Uh, only when there's a slight breeze, I get a little bit of peace. Okay? With the temperature now climbing to over 90 degrees, I joined one of the food truck lines to try and get some liquids in me. As I joined the line, a young tween began to vomit about 10 feet away from me. His father soon took him away and gave him some water. After about 40 minutes in line, word began to spread that this food truck was completely out of any beverages. Having now spent two hours in the heat, I left the rally area for a few minutes to go to a different food truck and find some water. Once I returned to the rally grounds, I spoke with a few more rally goers about why they were there that day. What's your name? Emily. Uh, why are you out here today? Um, well, one, I wanted to spend some time with my aunt. Um, and then I just think it's like so fun to just be here and like I just support like everything that anybody really says here. Like it's just all like like-minded people so it's just great to be here. Awesome. Are you guys from Wisconsin? Yeah, I'm from West Dallas. So. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, do you know who you're voting for in the uh, election coming up here? I do, yeah. Okay, who are you voting for? <laughs> um, I'm going to vote for Michael Spurgeon <laughs> and then... Um, Ron Johnson, yep. <laughs> yep. Then why are you out here today? We're out here to support Trump and to get kind of 
reassured about our beliefs and our values and just be among other like-minded people. Have you been to a uh, Trump rally before? Never, this is my first. All right, why are you guys here today? To support President Trump and the Constitution of We the People. Absolutely, speaks for us very well. Are you guys from Wisconsin here? Yes. I am not. Yes. You two are? Yes. Uh, do you guys know who your guys are uh, voting for for this upcoming election here? I haven't decided yet. I gotta do more research. Yep. Yep. Same here. Have uh, you guys ever been to a Trump rally before? Yes. Yes. Well, I'm a virgin. This is my first time. All right. <laughs> what do you think? I love it. It's so organized. Everyone's friendly, and uh, we even got together and we prayed over our country. It was awesome, and we sang, and it was wonderful. I think that's all I got, you guys. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Go Trump! Finally, it was time for today's speakers. First up was Michael Gableman, former Supreme Court justice turned investigator in a wide-ranging, taxpayer-funded investigation into the 2020 presidential election. Though Gableman is now facing several lawsuits, he kept a tight script leading the rally in an opening prayer, thanking God for Donald Trump. The first speaker was Adam Steen, Trump-endorsed candidate for Wisconsin's 63rd Assembly District, running to unseat top Republican Robin Foss in tomorrow's primary election. There's, there's only one man which is in charge of the wrong that's happening in Madison, and that is my opponent. Here's a few of his credentials. He's been there for 18 years, 10 of which he's been the Speaker of the Assembly. He stopped listening to the people long ago, and he wants to keep the Wisconsin Election Commission intact. But worst of all, he continuously obstructs the real efforts to find out what really happened in 2020. Steen's five-minute speech did not give me any information on who Steen is as a candidate. His biggest campaign issue is reshaping Wisconsin's election laws, but he is also against all forms of birth control, reports WKOW. Next came Trump-endorsed U.S. congressional candidate Derek Van Orden. They're worried because we have a fentanyl problem in the United States of America and a methamphetamine problem in the United States of America. 100,000 American citizens have died from fentanyl overdoses on Joe Biden's watch. It's the leading cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 45. And it just wasn't like that under President Trump. It was not. I went down to the U.S.-Mexico border, and guess what? It's open. We have an open border now. Finish the wall is a very good idea. And you know what? Brandon's working on the wall right now, isn't he? There's a surprise. According to the CDC, over 300,000 people died of drug overdoses in America while Trump was in office between 2017 and 2020. Finally, Republican candidate for governor Tim Michaels took the stage. His speech was almost word for word the same speech he gave to GOP voters in Dane County a week before, where Michaels declined an interview with WORT. Having already heard Michaels give the same speech, I stepped away to get some air. I had now been at the Waukesha County Fairgrounds for four hours, and Trump wasn't scheduled to go on for another two. With the lines for a chair growing and growing, I decided to find some space in the shade to sit on the ground and listen to the music. Pretty soon, it was 7 o'clock, then 7.15, then 
Michaels then took the stage once again, not to give a speech, but to let everyone know that Trump was running late, and it would be at least an hour until he landed at the Waukesha County Fairgrounds. Heatstroke was beginning to set in, and I decided to beat the crowd and head home. The rally was one of the most surreal events I have ever attended, a combination of high spirits and simmering tension. Clothing featured far-right talking points from Infowars to anti-Biden and racist dog whistle anti-Kamala Harris t-shirts. I thought I would blend in wearing a neutral Hawaiian shirt, but it turns out that I stuck out like a sore thumb. As Moon River played for the second time that day, I left the fairgrounds. The partisan primary election takes place tomorrow. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wagihout. The federal infrastructure law is helping states around the country address a variety of needs, including road repairs. That's welcome news for some rural Wisconsin communities, where local governments are having a hard time keeping up with deteriorating streets and county highways. Mike Moen from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. County highway commissioners across Wisconsin report challenges in keeping up with road repairs. While the federal government is providing some help, Rural residents worry about their economic base amid crumbling infrastructure. Mike Berg is a farmer and truck driver from Lafayette County. He says subpar roadways not only make for more dangerous driving, but are limiting economic development in his area. He suggests businesses won't want to be there, and neither will residents if their daily commute involves navigating bumps and sharp curves. Roads are so bad. In places, people are losing their dentures as they travel down the road. And he points to the cancellation of an annual county dairy breakfast because of road access issues as a sign of things to come. Some counties are borrowing money or adopting vehicle registration taxes to generate repair revenues. But rising construction costs and supply chain issues bring obstacles. Certain jurisdictions are starting to receive funds awarded through the new federal infrastructure law. Under that plan, Wisconsin is projected to receive more than $5 billion over the next five years to update roads, bridges, and many other infrastructure needs. That's viewed as much-needed help for counties stretching their dollars. Berg says he doesn't want to see local governments have to lean on residents so much if there's nowhere else to turn. Local governments are trying to um, keep the lid on property taxes. Despite the extra federal aid, demand outpaces available dollars. And while some solutions have been floated in the state legislature, it's unclear if lawmakers will be able to come together on a new revenue stream. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.19 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. When Oshkosh Defense announced in 2021 that they were not going to be building the next generation of postal service vehicles here in Wisconsin, labor leaders and environmental groups lambasted the decision. But the reason as to why the company decided to move production to South Carolina is a tricky one. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Wegehout spoke with Jacob Resnick with Wisconsin Watch to learn more. 
I'm on the line now with Jacob Resnick, reporter with Wisconsin Watch, who recently wrote a hefty breakdown of everything going on with Oshkosh Defense and their deal to build electric postal service vehicles. Jacob, thank you so much for talking with me here today. Of course, Nate. So, Jacob, just right off the bat here, let's start off with some history. What is Oshkosh Defense, and what was their big contract that they were given by the uh, Postal Service? Well, Oshkosh Defense, uh, a few years ago, until a few years ago, was known for about a century as Oshkosh Truck, and it's a major um, manufacturer of, of wheeled vehicles, and the lion's share of its work is with federal federal defense work. Um its parent company is Oshkosh Corporation. It's been uh, it's been in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, since the uh, early 20th century. Um, they won a multi-billion-dollar uh, contract from the U.S. Postal Service in 2021, and uh, it immediately got some hackles up because the first criticism was I think only about 10% of the vehicles were going to be electric vehicles. The rest were going to be you know, gasoline, internal combustion engines. And uh, critics were pretty upset because the fuel efficiency wasn't going to be much better than those Grumman trucks that they've been driving around since the 90s. And I think before that, the Postal Service used to drive those old surplus Jeeps, you know, when I was a kid. But um, the, the, the real... The real criticism was that they should be investing more into EVs. Then the next big, you know, hammer drop was that not only were they going to be not not EVs, that they were that they weren't going to be built in Wisconsin. They weren't going to be using their unionized workforce in the Oshkosh area. In fact, they were going to build a brand new plant in South Carolina, a place that they've never done any manufacturing before, and use presumably non-union labor to cut labor costs. And that really uh, caused a firestorm. Here in Wisconsin, because there's fears of um, of a loss of you know that thousand jobs uh, in in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And now we've covered the saga of Oshkosh defense a few times here on the WORT news. But one thing that we never really got to the bottom was why exactly did the company decide to move their production to South Carolina? What was their what was their given reason for moving to South Carolina? Well, the company said that they couldn't find a big enough warehouse space that they needed at least like 850,000 square feet um, in order to, to build it. And that they, and that because they need to start uh, start production uh, in, in about a year from now, to, they want these trucks to go to be in service by the end of 2023. They didn't have time to build something from scratch. Um, there's been a lot of skepticism from, from the labor union, United Auto Workers, about that. Uh, there's been some reports they had looked at the Foxconn site uh, down south of Milwaukee, but nothing came of that. Um, they do actually have a lot of, uh, their union says they have a lot of excess production site here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, although not all maybe on one campus. It's kind of scattered around town. But um, what what we found is that they've been lured with some pretty generous tax incentives from South Carolina and and the Palmetto State has a, has kind of a storied history I've learned of of luring away manufacturing from from more unionized um, Midwest and Northeast. Um, we did a little digging to some records requests. They found they're having a 40 year uh, property tax break where they're only going to be paying about 40 percent of the ta- of their tax bill and they'll have it locked in for the full 40 years. That's a long time to to, to lock in you know a tax break and um, 
I have to say, you know, we also looked at the kind of tax breaks that they got in Wisconsin, and they've got also some very generous ones. In over about a decade, they got $55 million in state uh, tax credits alone from the state of Wisconsin uh, to to uh, build some um, military vehicles. Uh, the difference between what Wisconsin's been doing and what South Carolina's been doing is in order to get those those tax incentives here, they had to maintain about a thousand jobs of at least paying at least twenty five dollars an hour. Now there's no wage for for the South Carolina deals they're getting. For the state tax credits they're getting, the local property tax breaks, all that. The only thing we could find when we were able to get a copy of the postal contract uh, was the wage for is the federal minimum wage, and that's $7.25. Now, I'm not saying they're going to be able to you know, hire plant workers for that low, but we did find some job ads through some third parties you know, with jobs starting around $8, and that's about half of what the starting wage is for someone working in the unionized plant in, in um in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. So, so it sounds like the company is looking for some serious uh, savings on, on the labor end. And now you mentioned the city of Oshkosh there where the plant uh, would be, uh, but they have a bit of a history with Oshkosh Defense and not just in name, but in business developments as well over recent years. What's the relationship sort of been between the city of Oshkosh and Oshkosh Defense uh, over the last few years? When I talk to, you know, local officials here and elected officials, the relationship's been pretty good. Um, but, you know, it is the largest private employer in the area. So, you know, it, it has a lot of, um, you know, it has a lot of clout. Um, this kind of came to the head a few years ago, though, when the company said that they needed a new headquarters and threatened to pull their, you know, their executives and headquarters out of Oshkosh, Wisconsin entirely. Uh, unless they were able to instead negotiate a pretty sweetheart deal where they got um, basically where they got most of the municipal golf course uh, given to them in very advantageous uh, terms and the city paid over $7 million for all the new infrastructure. Now they have this brand new uh, steel and glass um, ultra modern uh, headquarters here in Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And, you know, that's, you know, officials here are very happy because that means, you know, those 400-odd jobs will stay here. But it shows that the company is willing to, put, you know, play pretty serious hardball and get what it wants when it, when it, when it wants to, whether they're negotiating with South Carolina and or Oshkosh, Wisconsin. And, and that's kind of raised the question of, you know, how much loyalty does a Fortune 500 company um, have to a community? And is there really even a mechanism in, in you know, in, in corporate policy to build in something like, you know, community loyalty when they're looking at their balance sheet. Um, you know, they're very, con- they're, you know, they're a corporation publicly traded just like many others and they have to watch their stock price. And so when they're doing those kinds of calculations, um, it can, it can uh, definitely uh, have some effects on communities that leave people pretty un- unsettled. And now there's been a lot of talk with the union leaders in Oshkosh and their thoughts. Uh, but what is the city itself, the city of Oshkosh? What have they spoken much about this uh, deal that they that Oshkosh Defense has made with South Carolina? Yeah, you know, again, when I talk when I talk to city officials, they're generally, you know, at least publicly, they're pretty muted in any kind of perceived criticism of the company because uh, they're still are such a big player, and and also they do they still have billions of dollars in other federal defense work that continues, you know, to keep their plants in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, um, humming, 
and they're actually looking they're actually rebidding one of their largest contracts right now and it's supposed to be in the end of uh, beginning of next year we'll find out if this other multi-billion dollar military contract um you know either stays with the company or goes to a competitor and the big and also the big question would be if it does go back to Oshkosh defense would the trucks continue to be built here in Oshkosh or would they look for an, maybe another place with cheaper labor? Now we asked that, we asked the company and they said, you know, point blank that they have no intention of, you know, moving such production, you know, elsewhere, but you know, that will remain to be seen. So I guess coming back to your question, no, no actual loud criticism, but the most we got was, you know, the Winnebago County, Board of Supervisors put in a, you know, non-binding resolution, you know, asking them to please rethink that, you know, why would you move the work, you know, out of this community after, oh, you know, so much history and, and so much, so many tax incentives and other, you know, and everything the company's ever asked for, they've pretty much got it. That's what the message was for me from, from civic leaders. And so they were a little bit, a little bit uh, flummoxed why um, that wasn't enough to keep the company uh, building here. I've been talking with Jacob Resnick, reporter with Wisconsin Watch, about his new story on Oshkosh defense. Now, like I said at the top, this is a uh, hefty, dense story that you wrote here, Jacob, and we really didn't have time to go over everything that you found. So you can read the entire story for yourself online over at wisconsinwatch.org. Jacob, thank you so much again for coming on today. Hey, I always like getting a call from WRT. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray, here with my co-host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. It's Monday, and that means that Brenda Conkle sits down with Dylan Brogan to break down all the meetings happening this week around Madison and Dane County. New jail discussions, cargo planes, and an independent monitor blast from the past are all in store for this week's Forward Lookout. All right, it's Monday. That means we're speaking with Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com about what's happening this week in local government. We'll start with Dane County. Uh, a virtual meeting is happening right now. It's the PP&J. Um, what is the Public Protection and Judiciary Committee talking about? So they're having a joint meeting with the Public Works and Transportation Committee, or PWTC. Um, and those two committees are have one item on their agenda. It's realizing key goals of the Dane County Jail Project within the currently authorized funding. Um, I believe this is what they're referring to as the Black Caucus proposal. Yes. Um, and so they will be hearing that um, proposal and discussing it. Yes, and Sheriff Barrett uh, has kind of taken something that's been threatened but never acted upon where he's actually, I don't know how many have been shipped out yet, but he's uh, deemed uh, part of the city-county building unsafe and is now sending inmates out to other counties. So that just amps the pressure up, right? It most certainly did. It seems uh, like more of a political move than anything, but that may not be true. That's just my opinion. Um, and um, I do think that, you know, we did use to, this used to happen before and it is really burdensome on families. So I hope it's just not um, political gamesmanship, but he really feels that it is unsafe there. And Tuesday at 530, we have a virtual meeting of the Equal Opportunity Commission. And what's happening with them? Um, so they had um, a lot of reports on their agenda. They only had one item, which was about the Wisconsin State Journal articles about the zoo and um, the other disparities that are happening in county government. 
But then they also are looking at the EOC complaints about the highway and zoo departments. And so they've got some reports in there that may be of interest to see um, how people of color are being treated within Dane County. All right. And then um, Tuesday, of course, there's an election, so we don't have uh, meetings either uh, in the city or the county. So everyone make sure to vote if you haven't already. And then um, but we will talk about the Park Commission meeting on Wednesday. And that is a Zoom meeting as well. Um, yeah, that that's interesting because they had been meeting in person. Yeah, right. Then, <laughs> right, and now they're on Zoom, so it's weird. Um, but they are um, they have some fee changes for Dane County Parks for 2023 for next year, and then the Heritage Center for 2024. They are looking at some fee changes there as well, and then they are looking at uh, MMSD, which in this case is the Madison Metropolitan. Metropolitan Sewerage District Relief Force Main Project, which impacts the Ice Age Trail junction area. So if that might influence some people if they're big proponents of the trail. So I might want to check out what that's all about. Exactly. Okay. And finally, uh, the last thing we'll talk about with the county is the Airport Commission and lots going on with the airport. Uh, what's on the agenda? Biggest thing that they'll be talking about is their airport agenda. Uh, budget for 2023. So um, that that's big on there. And then they also have um, a cargo airline operating agreement with the Federal Express and then a couple parking, short-term parking lease uh, exemptions. All right, we'll move on to the city of Madison. Uh, already in progress is the Police Civilian Oversight Board, their oral um, panel subunit, I guess. You'll have to explain what that is. Um, so yeah, this is a closed session meeting. Why is that? Well, they'll be meeting not only today, but tomorrow and Wednesday, and they are doing oral board interviews. Um, so those are done in closed session. Hopefully after the end of three days, they'll be able to make some decisions about who will be um, revealed to the public that are the, the top candidates. I feel like we've been here before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It does feel like a repeat. Um, hopefully they actually end up being able to hire someone this time. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, a little over a year ago is when they, they hired someone. It didn't quite work out. So, all right. Good yeah. luck to them this time. Uh, also happening uh, today is um, a bunch of promotions and stuff, it looks like, for the Police and Fire Commission. Uh, did I get that right? Yeah. Um, they have promotions both in the fire department and in the police department. Some of those will be approved in closed session. And then they have the um, normal reports that they have yeah. that have um, updates on various parts of their hiring processes and prom promotional processes. Okay, let's go all the way down now to Tuesday and the Transportation Commission. We haven't heard too much about transportation uh, being at least a heated debate or anything. So, yeah, what is the Transportation Commission up to at 5 o'clock on Wednesday? And that is a virtual meeting. They actually have like two things on their agenda um, one is um, changing how they um, uh, the company that they uh, use to collect the fare boxes. Um, and so they it looks like they're going to be switching, I believe. It looks like a new name to me. Um, and then they are also looking at um, one of the public works and transportation projects at South Pickney uh, between Doty Street and Wilson Street. So that's right there by the Jesha Square uh, parking ramp. No, the company is Masabi, um, and so I'm not sure if that's the same one that they used the last time around, um, but they used to have somebody else that they used. Okay, and then uh, we'll talk about the Public Safety Review Committee, which meets on Wednesday at 5.30. You are on that committee, so uh, well, what are you talking about along with the, the rest of the PSRC? Oh, this will be a real quick meeting. We're just going to talk about tear gas. <laughs> but yeah, we'll be talking about um, 
not allowing uh, police departments to give mutual aid if they are going to use tear gas, mace, or other uh, impact projectile devices, which are mostly those beanbag guns. Um, and this still is from sort of following up from the last time. I feel like you've done this before, and uh, right? Well, at least once, maybe twice even. And I think just once we okay. did when um, when Max Preston Giacomo was still on the uh, council. Um, we had one of these ordinances that came through. I believe this one is a little bit different, um, but we'll see once um, how it goes this time. Last time, the PSRC very clearly voted uh, to ban tear gas. And the Common Council decided not to listen to you. Yeah, exactly. But that's <laughs> the breaks, I guess, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, uh, on Thursday, um, real quick here, we're running out of time. Uh, we have, again, they changed when the Common Council Executive Committee meets, which I, is somehow unsettling to me, and only me, I think. But, <laughs> no, um, it's unsettling to me, too. All right, what the heck? For, We've done this for, for eight like, years, and it was always <laughs> on a Tuesday before a Common Council meeting. Now it's a Thursday at 5.30 with no Council meeting. So uh, I don't know what to think about that. but um, That darn Keith... Berman yeah, I think I do up. think it has to do with that new <laughs> council president, Keith Berman. Well, maybe I got to ask him, like, you know, just there's just something not right about it. But I guess we'll talk about it anyway. <laughs> right. Um, so they are. Um, I, I really like this one. They are looking at an ordinance to require um, that any meetings. Um, yeah. That in open session are recorded. So um, that seems really super exciting to me. We could have been doing that all along with everybody being on Zoom. Um, and then in addition to that, they'll be talking about what does it mean to be a hybrid meeting hmm. as well as looking at the 2023 Common Council meeting dates. So kind of doing a lot of um, it's midsummer cleaning, I guess, is what. Yes. The, okay. Yeah. <laughs> little housekeeping. All right. Well, Brenda Conkle from ForwardLookout.com. Uh, make sure to check that out if you want to know more about what's happening this week in local government. Thank you, Brenda, for giving us a preview. Good. Thanks, Dylan. Today marks the anniversary of the passage of the British Enclosure Act of 1845, where land use rights were taken from small subsistence farmers to develop estates for the lords. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Today, August 8th, marks the passage by the British Parliament of the Enclosure Act of 1845, taking away common land from the people and appointing enclosure commissioners who can enclose more land without an act of parliament. From the 17th to the 20th century, the British government passed over 500 enclosure laws, enclosing nearly 7 million acres of common land that the people had the right to use. As the old anonymous poem goes, the law locks up the man or woman who steals the goose from off the common, but leaves the greater villain loose who steals the common from the goose. Often the military crushed any resistance, the enclosures were vital to developing modern-day capitalism, creating a whole class of landless people who had no way to survive other than selling their labor power, the working class. Before the enclosures, land was held in common by the people of a village, 
a farmer would typically cultivate a series of small strips that would change over the years with other villagers. There would typically be land that was used by all to graze cattle or sheep. Less useful land, called waste, would grow thatch and be used for hunting and gathering. The poorest people in the village would farm the waste. A lord formerly owned the land and would get a cut of the crops raised. The 1845 law allowed the vast taking of land by the lords with the removal of the tenants who were supposed to be compensated for giving up their traditional use rights. The villagers had little say in the matter. The parliament, which made the rules, was made up of lords. Much of England was open in 1700, but most of it was enclosed by 1840. Historian E.P. Thompson called it a plain enough case of class robbery. As a poor man of the day put it, all I know is I had a cow and the parliament took it away from me. Many thousands were forced off the land to work for the Lord's improved land or move to town and work in the textile mills. The case of the Oatmore near Oxford was fairly typical. There was a protracted struggle to enclose Oatmore starting in 1801 when the Duke of Marlborough planned to drain and allot the enclosure of over 4,000 acres of Oatmore. When, in accordance with the law, notices were posted on parish church doors announcing the proposal, they were taken down by a mob at each place. The next application was made in 1815. Again, it was found impracticable to affix notices, owing to the large mobs armed with every description of offensive weapons. No records of any manner enjoying rights of common could be found. The custom of usage, without stint, in fact, pointed to some grants before the memory of man. The bill was passed despite these discoveries, which made it unlikely that any lord of the manor had ever had any absolute right to the soil. In 1830, the dam that had been part of the drainage effort broke, and the farmers took the law into their own hands and cut the embankments. Twenty-two farmers were indicted and acquitted. This made a profound impact on the cottagers, and for a week, parties of enthusiasts paraded the moor and cut down its fences. One of Croak's sons, Croak was the would-be lord, appeared with a pistol, but the moormen wrestled it from him and gave him a thrashing. Assembling by the light of the full moon, blackening their faces, and dressing in women's clothing, the commoners stepped forth to destroy the fences, the hedges, the gates, every part of the infrastructure of enclosure. The High Sheriff, the Oxford Militia, and Lord Churchill's yeomen were summoned. But the villagers were not impressed. They came out in full force to walk around their traditional boundary in accordance with an old custom. On Monday, September 6th, 500 men, women, and children assembled in the Outmore towns, and they were joined by 500 more from nearby villages. Soon a thousand people went out and in broad daylight demolished every fence which obstructed their course, armed with repooks hatchets, bell hooks, and other farm implements, covering the moor with an impressive display of power and self-respect. Wheelwrights, hatters, and hay dealers, shoemakers, tailors, butchers, masons, plumbers, the full range of village artisans were present. The commoners were organized from the entire region. In retaliation, 60 or 70 commoners were seized by the cavalry, and 44 were sent to the Oxford jail, escorted by yeomanry. But the protesters coincided with St. Giles Fair, the streets were crowded with people. When the cry was raised, Oatmore forever, the crowds took it up and hurled brickbats, sticks, and stones from every direction. All 44 prisoners escaped. Many thousands were present, and the two dozen soldiers defeated. 
fled. For two more years, the Utmore would remain in rebellion. The British were also busy selling Africans, stealing lands in the Caribbean and North America, and exporting food from Ireland during the 1848 famine. But those are stories of resistance for another day. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.47 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. It's the end of the summer. It's hot, muggy, and most of us would rather be doing anything except working. Burnout can hit fast and hard, and what do we do to treat it? On this week's archival edition of Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen walks us through what burnout is and what we can do to treat it. You arrive at work and you sit down at your desk. You turn on your computer and see your inbox again, filled with endless emails that you never seem to finish replying to. Letting out a huge sigh, the workday begins. The same routines every day, doing the same things you have been doing for many years. You start to feel like you no longer have the passion you once had when you started this job, or that partaking in this activity no longer brings you a sense of fulfillment, but rather ongoing stress. Sound familiar? This is a sign that you are burnt out. Feeling burnt out is not a new sensation, but the term was not coined until the 1970s by psychologist Herbert Frudenberger. A term that was only used to describe the feeling of exhaustion in the workplace has now expanded to other aspects of our lives, and perhaps even heightened during the pandemic. This week, we'll be exploring the concept of burnout and why it's important for us to deal with it. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. Burnout was originally only considered to be a phenomenon that occurred in the human service sector. Professions such as healthcare, law enforcement, legal services, or social work were the only ones that people had associated with burnout. This is because the initial questionnaire that was designed to measure burnout was limited to these professions only. The questionnaire was then later expanded with more generalized questions to catch up with the changing socioeconomic environment. More people started to record feeling burnt out in the late 20th century. Researchers find that the modern working life promotes high productivity and versatility. People are valued based on how much they can produce and how much more they can take on compared to others. People are expected to learn multiple skills and individualism is encouraged. Thus, the constant pressure to produce, surpass, and compete eventually leads a person to feel exhausted in the chase leading to burnout. There are three components of burnout, according to Frudenberger. Emily and Amelia Nagoski, authors of the book Burnout, The Secret to Unlocking the Stress Cycle, spoke about the three components of burnout in a TED interview series. So according to the original technical definition from Herbert Frudenberger in the 1970s, burnout, uh, which originally was inclusive only of the workplace but has expanded now, involves depersonalization, where you separate yourself emotionally from your work instead of investing yourself and feeling like it's meaningful. Decreased sense of accomplishment, where you just keep working harder and harder for uh, less and less sense that what you are doing is making any difference, and emotional exhaustion. Aside from the emotional responses, psychologists also find that the body physically reacts to the stress stemming from burnout. Melinda Wenner-Moyer from the New York Times interviewed several doctors and researchers on the physical symptoms of burnout on your body. One of the most common symptoms is insomnia. 
Research has shown that stress alters the body hormone levels that regulate sleep, leading to poorer sleep quality. Another common sign is physical exhaustion, feeling like you're always worn out after a day's work. A change in eating habits might also occur due to higher stress levels restricting one's appetite. The pandemic came along and increased people's feelings of burnout. The home once being a place to escape to after work is now your place of work. The constant fear of catching the virus and spreading it to others. Not being able to see family that lived far away or visit friends. The never-ending rise and fall of cases makes it hard to plan for anything. In 2021, many people started quitting their jobs, resulting in the Great Resignation. Pew Research Center found that low pay was among the most cited reasons that people left their job. With the pandemic driving up living costs, the salary payment did not increase accordingly for people to adjust. Moreover, the pandemic got people rethinking their career paths and choosing for themselves whether it was worth it to stay at a job that caused them immense stress. How do we deal with burnout then? It's definitely not as easy as saying just relax. Emily and Amelia Nagoski spoke at the XOXO Festival about how to deal with the overwhelming feeling of stress that comes with burnout. Because our body responds to stress with the fight-or-flight response, we need to complete the stress cycle to let our body know that it is safe to release the tension. Physical activity, imagination, creative self-expression, and connection are the four ways to end your stress cycle. Go outside and do an activity. Watch a movie that takes you into another world. Express your emotions by writing, painting, singing, or any creative outlet. And talk to another person, any person. That'll help you feel less alone in your stress. The Nagoski sisters concluded their speech by emphasizing the importance of facing those emotions and treating yourself with kindness. You have permission to take a break from whatever it is that is causing your stress. You are allowed to pause and turn toward your own body with kindness and compassion. We're telling you this because it turns out the cure for burnout is not self-care. It's all of us caring for each other. We are not built to do big things alone. We're built to do them together. together. For Bridging the Gap in WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. On the big screen is Bullet Train, an over-the-top violent action movie with a dark, humorous edge. And on the small screen is Prey, a prequel in the long-running Predator series. You arrive at work, and you sit down at your desk. I am ready. Well, that's great, Ladybug. Ladybug? Your new operational name. Oh, I see what you're doing. Ladybug's supposed to be lucky. You don't have bad luck. Really? And that was led from the amusing, engaging, over-the-top, violent bullet train, directed by David Leish. It's loosely based on a Japanese novel by Kotoro Isaka, but they switch out most of the Japanese characters for Western ones. The screenplay is by Zach Olkowitz. If you have seen the preview, you know everything you need to know. For those who haven't, the story's pretty basic. A likable killer, codenamed Ladybug, played by Brad Pitt, boards a bullet train from Tokyo to Kyoto. In the real world, this takes about two and a half hours. It's a bullet train, after all. But in the movie, it looks like an all-day affair. Ladybug's assignment seems too simple, and of course that soon proves to be the case. He follows orders from his handler, a convincing, mostly off-screen Sandra Bullock, as Marie Beetle to pick up his supplies, get on the train, and steal 
a steel briefcase with a unique sticker. Ladybug, though, doesn't take the gun. It seems he has spent time away from his job with a therapist. Ladybug has decided to do the job without killing anyone and to try to deal with his own bad luck. Unfortunately, a lot of people on the train are after the briefcase and have no compunctions about killing Ladybug or anyone else who gets in their way. Ladybug is barely on the train when he is attacked by the wolf, played by musician Bad Bunny, out for revenge. Ladybug accidentally dispatches him, but his troubles have just begun, mainly in the person of the partners, the twins, Lemon, Brian, Tyree, Henry, and Tangerine, Aaron Taylor Johnson, as two British hitmen who were supposed to return the case and the errant's son, Logan Lehrman, of a Japanese crime lord, White Death, Michael Shannon. There's also the father, Andrew Koji, out to kill whoever threw his son off the roof, and the prince, an underestimated Joey King, not to be confused with her earlier role in The Princess. The fight scenes are the highlight of the movie. Leash was a stuntman. He did a stint as the double for Brad Pitt. There are some funny, violent scenes and some amusing exchanges between Ladybug and his opponents. All in all, funny, summertime action, over-the-top violent film, it's meant to be seen on the big screen. Now for something completely different. Nah, just kidding. Why do you want to hunt? Because you all think that I can't. I saw a sign in the sky. I'm ready. That was Glip from the trailer for Prey, a new prequel in the long-running Predator series, and probably the best one since the original. Prey is directed by Dan Trachtenberg. The screenplay is by Patrick Ason. The movie clocks in at 1 hour 49 minutes and doesn't waste any of it. The film has a largely Native American cast with a story set among the northern Great Plains of the Cherokee Nation in 1719. Our protagonist is Nehru, played by Amber Midthunder, a young woman who wants to be a hunter and feels she is ready for hunting something that could hunt her back. Her elder brother, Tabe, Dakota Beavers, insists she isn't ready and her mother, Aruka Michelle Thrush doesn't understand her either. Why do you want to hunt, her mother asks. Because you all think I can't, she predictably replies. But Nehru fails in her first hunt, although she proves her tracking and healing skills. Nehru's failure makes her more determined to prove herself in the male-dominated tribe. She is the only one who believes there is something else out there. The tracks are too big for a bear. She's right, of course, and the movie provides a lot of great hunting-chasing scenes in her pursuit of the creature. The predator, played by Dane D'Allegro, has more basic weapons, including a shield this time, though. It's 300 years in the past, after all. But it should be enough, along with his invisibility, to take on the indigenous people, especially a slight young woman who really doesn't seem to be much of a threat. Or is she? The story is pretty intense and violent, but also pretty believable. It's well worth watching a fine action-adventure sci-fi film with a solid cast led by Amber Midthunder. There's also fine cinematography by Jeff Cutter. Prey just started playing on Hulu. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporter tonight was Mike Moen from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, Brenda Conkle, and Dylan Brogan. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Wiggehaupt produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Seeger Gray. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. 
Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.